A no is a stepping stone to a yes. It helps you get on the path of what you actually should be doing. But once you find that and you're 100%, you know, deep down, then you just got to pour everything into it. And no matter what, just keep you know pushing forward. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors, where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Grace for Impact. Our next featured guest in the series on disruption is Ryan Evans, co-founder and CEO of Inboard Technology, home of the M1 Electronic Skateboard. Ryan and a few members of his Inboard team were recently featured on Shark Tank, and convinced Mr. Wonderful, a.k.a. Kevin O'Leary, to partner with them in their mission to be a part of the massive disruption in the transportation industry. Since then, their electronic skateboard, the M1, has taken the world by storm, and the company is growing at a blistering pace. Today, you will learn a lot about Ryan, his vision for the company, and the industry in general. We also talk a lot about the significant influence his family has had in his entrepreneurial journey, specifically his mom. So don't be a podcast junkie. Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact with Ryan Evans. Ryan Evans, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. We are improvising today because I forgot my other microphone. And uh, and so you are recording on an iPhone uh, 6 in the voice memos. In the voice memos with an earbud <laughs> hooked up to one ear. So I hope the microphone yes, works for everybody yes, and doesn't yes. hit against my shirt too much. But that's what we do as entrepreneurs. We improvise. Fortunately, I have a team of trusty uh, professionals on the back end that will edit this sucker and make it all sound amazing. Fantastic. Because I realized early on when I started this thing that that is definitely not one of my skill sets. So, <laughs> Oh, that's part of being an entrepreneur, knowing what you're good at and then hiring everybody else around you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I always kick things off with the same question, which is if you could pick a skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Wow. That's really, really interesting. I think I know exactly what it would be, and I'm kind of, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad. Uh, when I was in second grade and we learned how to write papers, like you had all these different types of papers you could write, and one of them was persuasive papers, and I kicked ass at persuasive papers. And you fast forward like, you know, 20 years later, and I'm the CEO of a company, and all I do is, you know, sell people and persuade them to invest in my company. So uh, I guess my one skill that I'm really good at is persuasion. And as a superhero or potentially supervillain, I could just become the super persuader and get people to do anything I wanted, like a Jedi mind trick. Yeah, no, well, persuasion, that's an interesting one. Actually, I don't think anybody has actually taken that question about that particular skill set and answered with persuasion. Uh, and, and that's a really powerful tool. I mean, you know, Robert Caldini, he just wrote a, a book called Influence, which is about influencing others and, and decision-making and all that stuff. What are you doing right now to 
develop that skill and further refine it and hopefully keep it in the good category. Yes, exactly. The, you're not crossing over to the dark side. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen Netflix Marvel show Jessica Jones. Oh, uh, yes, I have. Well, that, I was thinking about that super film, but I would do it yeah. for good. I would be yeah, like the yeah. Elon Musk of like <laughs> mind trickery. So how do I continue to develop that skill set? That's a fantastic question. I think, you know, as the CEO of a company, especially with a technology company, you've got, you know, very kind of extroverted people in sales and marketing, and oftentimes a lot of introverted people in engineering. And that doesn't have to be that way, but, you know, a lot of times it, it works out that way. Um, and so for me, uh, you know, going out, meeting, networking with investors, it comes very kind of natural to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going to continue to do that, you know, will just naturally build up that, that skill set. But really for me, I want to continue to dive more and more deeper into like my technical knowledge. Um, you know, I was downstairs with the guys and I was joking around like, man, I just wish I would have studied engineering and like electrical and mechanical. And they're like, no, you're very good at exactly <laughs> what you're doing. But I think that's it. You, you can't ever be you know, satisfied. You always want to have that thirst for knowledge and yeah. to expand your skills. So you don't have any engineering background? Zero. No, none. Oh, fascinating. I did not know that. And I, and I tell people, you know, the difference between me and Theo, um, you know, when we were five years old, if I had a robot and it broke, like I would open the robot and I would look at the motor controller or the PCB and I would like, you know, snap it in half and then throw it away. Yeah. Theo would figure out how it worked, resolder new components to it and make the robot better or different. Yeah. Um, and that was the difference between us. So, you know, now we're working with so many engineers and being surrounded by it. And, you know, I've always loved technology, but now having access to it. It's like this, I feel like a five-year-old kid with, you know, who's just discovered the world for yeah. the first time. And so just so people are clear, Theo is your brother. I'm sorry, Theo's uh, my business partner. Business partner? Yeah, so he's uh, the, our CTO and okay, uh, CTO, the co-founder okay. of Inboard. Okay. Okay. Uh, and he was the one who came up with the idea for the Mantra Drive, which is okay. our in-wheel motor technology. Yeah, which we'll, we'll talk a little bit about disruption and how disruptive that is in, in a little bit. How did you guys meet, by the way, the two of you? So I was the president of a company called Pure Action Sports. Um, okay. And uh, the major company that we had was called Best Kiteboarding. It was one of the largest uh, kiteboarding companies in the world. And uh, Theo was one of our team riders. So he's one of our professional athletes. And he was based in Spain. Or, I'm sorry, France. And so when he transferred his schools, he was going to a university in France. And he switched to America. Um, and it was down in L.A. And so he became kind of my team rider. So whenever I was in LA, I would you know shoot him a text, hey, do you want to meet up, kite, surf, hang out? And we would. And you know, Theo was very introverted. I'm a big extrovert, but we both had this huge love for action sports. And one day we showed up at the beach, and the waves were crap. So like I paddle out, and Theo's putting on his wetsuit. And then two minutes later, I see a drone fly over me, and it's Theo flying the drone on the beach. And I paddle right back in. I throw my surfboard to the side. I'm like, who cares about surfing? Like I want to know about this. Yeah. And so the thing that we really kind of, you know, love together was the application of technology to sports, the application of like brand new technologies to action sports, the things that we loved and being able to capture them and share them and enjoy them in you know, all new ways. So, you know, whether it was drones or whether it was, you know, rideables and electric skateboards, um, you know, or, you know, it's some, you know, new way to, you know, have a sensor that can, you know, measure movements. Like we love the ability to like kind of take technology to amplify the things that we do naturally. Yeah, I love that. That, that. There's this, you know, one of the, there's this, a good friend of mine who has another podcast that, that's called The Learning Leader Show. And one of the common traits of the people he interviews is a curiosity. Mm. And you definitely have that sense of curiosity and fascination by the unknown, trying to make the unknown known. Yeah. But is that something that, that you... Had, have always had as, as a little kid, or did you have like a mentor? Maybe you could tell us a story of a mentor who, who you've had that's helped shape your outlook and, and maybe drawn out those 
traits in you? Yeah, you know, honestly, uh, I think at a very early age, I just, I never liked the fact that, oh, this is the way it is because it's always been that way. Like, I, I couldn't stand that. I remember being like seven or eight years old and be like, well, no, why why do you do it like this? Why can't you make it better? It was that, you know, just entrepreneur very early on, like, here's a problem. Why can't we make things better? And I think a lot of it was my family. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot growing up. We weren't like in the on the poverty line, but we, we were, you know, you know, tough middle class, you know, uh, I had a younger sister who was disabled. So, you know, we really worked together as a family to kind of support each other. And I think the things that, you know, you were really ingrained in us is that, you know, when you believe in something, you know, analyze something and, and really get to the core kind of root of something. And if you really believe in it, well, then defend it and like go after it. Um, you know, and so, you know, one story that I shared last week at the, the Titans of Tech event uh, is that my younger sister, sister is disabled and, you know, she was in a wheelchair. And, you know, when she was, you know, five years old, I was 10, and we'd be at Toys R Us and, you know, she'd be in a wheelchair and some stranger, whether it was a kid, five years old, uh, a 15 year old, or, you know, a 45 year old adult, they would come up and they'd just be like, what's wrong with you? Like in the most callous, like stupid way possible. Like, yeah. what's wrong with you? And then I would jump in the middle, be like, what's wrong with you? Get out of here. You know? <laughs> Or, you know, they would just stare at her and I'd have to, you know, walk between my sister in a wheelchair and this adult who's just staring at her. And you really early on had to defend what you believed in. This is my family. Like, you don't do these things. And, you know, this is not the way that you act and you, you, you do it respectfully. And so I think, re, you know, really kind of early on, my family was that kind of mentor where, you know, if you see a problem, you go after it, you fix it, you find something. And if you believe in it, like you go after it vehemently. Um, and so that's kind of the way I've kind of lived my life from, you know, when I was in college and, you know, studied you know, political science and business to, you know, not where, um, you know, two years ago I went vegan just because you look at what's happening with the climate and with animal agriculture and, you know, you get rid of everything else on like the heartstrings. If you look at it economically and from yeah. an environmental perspective, it's the de facto. So, you know, I'm not preaching and telling people to do it, but I made some research. I like meat. <laughs> yeah, I, I did some research. I found, you know, what I could believe to be like solid evidence and I went after it and I, you know, kind of cemented that. And I think, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, you've got to be able to kind of compartmentalize things. Know, like, this is a really solid foundation. I can set this as a kind of automated. Now I can move on to my yeah. next challenge. I mean, entrepreneurs by nature don't settle for the status quo. They break the rules. They bend the rules. They find ways around the rules. Yeah. And and so, I mean, and, and they don't limit that to just one area of their life. Yeah. It's, it's, it's every area. Yeah. It's, they're constantly disrupting and growing. And otherwise you're, you, you don't, you're, just, you're fixed and you don't grow and you don't innovate and you die. Yeah. Right. It's like innovate or die. And so, you know, you're kind of backing up. Like my brother was like a mentor for me from like a futurism standpoint. I remember we were hanging out on like the front porch of some friend's house when I was like 15 and he was 20 and I was tagging along with his friends. And he's talking about how in the future, like our clothes are going to have electronics in it. And like, you'll, you'll wear electronics and people are like, dude, you are crazy. Your brother was saying that? Yeah, that was 17 years ago. We we're on the front porch of a friend's house, Aaron, you, and everyone's just like, you're crazy. He's like, no, your tie will have electronics. And they're like, no. And he was right, you know? And, you know, people would call him crazy. You know, I remember we were, I was five years old. He was like nine or 10 because we were four to five years apart, depending on the, the month. Uh, and he was going around the neighborhood selling people like, oh no, I'm going to build robots and we're going to sell robots. And, and we were just always into creating that. That's future. crazy. What did he do? What is he doing anything? Uh, yeah. So he's our VP of marketing. <laughs> oh, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. So, awesome. uh, you know, it, it was interesting. You know, I've learned a ton through my sister, both of my parents. And I think, you know, having that kind of family and, and, and that, that kind of support system really kind of allowed me to, to kind of go after some of these yeah. more harebrained and crazy ideas. Were your parents entrepreneurs or were they? No. Um, you know, my dad uh, works in the car industry um, yeah. for Cadillac. And then my mom is the manager of a you know, women's clothing store called Talbot's. And, um, you know, they just instilled in me really early on, like hard work ethic, um, you know, and kind of 
one of the big things, especially with my mom, uh, she never liked doing things because that's the way things were supposed to be done. Um, you know, she supported me in almost anything I, I ever wanted to do. Uh, when I told my parents I wanted to go study abroad when I was in university and go to New Zealand, my mom was like, that's the best thing you could ever do. And my dad was like, I'm not paying for it, you know, <laughs> but that was kind of it. They're like, look, you're going to do it on your own, but we want to support you in anything that you do. Yeah, no, I think that's that's critical to have people. And and, and it was great that you you had your mom who was like super supportive and and encouraging of your your ideas that are that are not the normal. Right. Yeah. And then you had your dad who is like discouraging you to a certain, to a certain degree, uh, like, or, you know, grounding me to grounding reality. You to reality <laughs> yeah. Because that's life. Yeah. You know, you're going to have people on both sides of that mm -hmm. in, in every area, wh whether it's, you know, at, here at Inboard dealing with investors who are, who you got one investor that's challenging an idea, another investor who's in encouraging your idea. Yeah. And, you know, the people in traffic, somebody wants to, to cut in front of you, another person wants to let you in. It's yeah. just, it's just everywhere. Yeah. It's just everywhere. What made you want to be an entrepreneur? What, why are you an entrepreneur? Maybe there's one or two or three impact moments that were, were kind of like the catalyst that launched you on this trajectory. Mm -hmm. Well, one, one point you, that you just made was, um, uh, you know, you, you, you see what you know, the possibility could be, and then you're dealt with the reality of the situation. You know, I remember before I started my own company, You'd see a company with a lot of potential, like, oh, if only they did these five things, they'd blow up. Like, I should totally be in there. And if I was doing that, and then you get into the reality of like, well, we want to launch a new website, but we can't afford to. So we're going to have to make this one work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you have to deal with resource constraint. And that's a huge challenge. But uh, you know, I think you just got to constantly have that kind of long, longer term vision and be able to kind of push through those you know, kind of shorter term challenges and really be able to you know, manifest that. But I think just before you go into the, the, the yeah. impact moments, you know, resource constraints, right? That, that's a real thing that people have to deal with. But it also is, I think, a fake obstacle. Mm -hmm. Because if you really wanted it bad enough, you would learn the skill. Yeah, yeah you're you totally know? right. And, and, I, and this is something I, I grapple with today too. Oh, I can't, I can't build a website, so I'm going to delay on, on launching X, Y, or Z. Yeah. But I can learn, you know, I mean, there, you can go buy a course on Udemy for like $50 or mm -hmm. something like that and learn how to build a WordPress site, yeah. you know, and le or learn how to copyright or whatever it is that you can't afford to outsource, you can learn. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I don't think that, I think that we have bought into that belief. And that's one of those uh, limiting beliefs that holds us back from realizing our full potential and our greatness. And this, the whole, one of the whole points of this podcast is to help people realize that we all possess a unique element of greatness that is specific to us and that there are all kinds of, we've been surrounded by people, both positive and negatives that prevent us mm -hmm. to a certain degree from realizing that, that uh, potential because they're looking at us on the outside from their own personal experience and either, and they're projecting that on us because we always project our own needs yeah. on others. It's, it goes back to the whole yeah. flight, fight or flight kind of mentality, right? And so I think that, you know, the way that we can break through and disrupt our own lives and launch that next thing and take that next best step is to even challenge those beliefs where we think just because we don't have the resources to build that website, you know, that we can't do it. Yeah. I mean, 
the barrier to entry is so low now. I mean, $5, go to Fiverr. Yeah, you yeah. could $5, yeah, exactly. you know? Yeah. And, and it's amazing. So we took, um, yeah, we, we had, you know, we want to launch this nice $150,000 enterprise website. We didn't have, you know, we were loading everything into working capital. Uh, so Dave, my brother, our VP of marketing, uh, went out and uh, talked to his best friends, you know, got people to do it for comp boards and, you know, for, you know, bro deals. They would work until two o'clock in the morning and the guys hustled and they were able to build the website that would have cost 150K themselves, um, you know, just through hustling. So yeah, I mean, you're, you have to deal with resource constraints, but that yeah. doesn't mean just re- Analyze how you are able to manifest that. Yeah. Raise the money to make it happen. Cut the budget and figure out a way to do it more creatively. Can you do it for equity? Can you do it for trade? Could you do it for you know all these other things? Yeah. And you just gotta get scrappy. Yeah. I was just listening to an interview with someone who who back in the days of where Google AdWords were the big thing, mm-hmm. he actually created a business where where he was going to he put out a little bit of capital, I think five hundred dollars. And the idea was to to uh, it was a, he was gonna build a lead generation site. And so he built a rudimentary site for $500. And then people opted into that. They paid him money to do AdWords. So he was doing AdWords and learning how to do AdWords and all of the stuff while other people were paying him to do it. Yeah, Nothing was coming out of his pocket. And he's building this huge list, which he was able to parlay into an even bigger business opportunity several years later. And it's just thinking creatively and outside of the box with regard to how you can make things happen, even though it doesn't seem plausible. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I mean, people always want to say, oh, if only I could have this. And they look at the end goal. But it's all about the iteration to get there. Yeah. And I went to a conference one time, uh, and this guy was like, I really wanted to write a book, but I know people would buy it. So uh, you know, I thought about you know, writing a draft, and, then, and he redacted it all the way down to he was going to give a free 30-minute lecture. <laughs> and so he, and, if, and if 10 people signed up, he was going to do the lecture. And so he puts this thing up. I'm going to do a 30-minute lecture at this community center, and like 20 people show up. And so, oh, well, that was double what I expected. So he goes home, and then he writes a blog post about the lecture. And so he doesn't, let, let me do another one, see if more people show up. And he keeps doing it, and he keeps writing blog posts about the lecture. And then he realizes after 10 of these, and now a couple hundred people are showing up, he's got a decent amount of blog posts, and now he has people following so he does a survey on his blog, like, hey, if I was to take you know, these blog posts and turn them into a book, would you be interested? And people were like, yeah. So then he creates a new page, uh, spends some time, and just turns these 10 blog posts into one short chapter of the book. And says, this is my first chapter. If 10,000 people sign up for this online, I'll actually write the rest of the book. Puts it up. Three months later, 10,000 people signed up. He decides, hey, now I'm actually going to start writing the book. And then he, you know, and he was able to show so much traction that he got, um, you know, uh, what is that? Where they pay you up front the uh, an uh, advance, an advance yeah. from from the, the publisher. publisher, and he he kicks it off. And I was like, that's brilliant. You know, yeah. he didn't write the book and then shop it around. He made sure that everything he was doing was in vain, in line to do it. Um, you know, was it as quick as if he would have just started writing it? Maybe not, but he knew what he was writing and had an audience. What the audience wanted. And I think ultimately he was more successful. Yeah, I think that goes with that whole de- design philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like you had how many prototypes did you have before you uh, rolled of, out? Of which, which component? <laughs> I mean, remotes. Yeah. We've got like forty remotes over there. Wheels. We had. You know, we were making our own. We were milling them. We were you know carving them to make them work with our product. So many decks. I mean, it's all about the iteration. Yeah, it's all about the iteration. It's all about the you know taking steps and tweaking and. And I was just overhearing some of your guys outside while we were talking about how even since you guys have launched and initial orders have come in that 
you know, you guys have even modified since then and made improvements, you yeah. know? And and it's it's all about doing that. But it's it's also not waiting until the product is perfect no. before you release it. Absolutely. That's the whole point of iterating and and prototyping and designing. And the thing that Elon's done uh, at Tesla specifically is that you know he's really kind of changed the market to embrace the fact that the product's going to consistently get better. I mean, if you've got a product that is in demand and you're selling through consistently, then you know your next shipment to the retailer can consistently be a better product. And if you just want to wait until the product's perfect, you're never going to ship it. Um, and if you ship something that's inferior without some really good way to kind of address those concerns, you know, you're going to go out of business and fail. So it's got to, you've got to prove something that, you know, this is reliable and I'm meeting my consumer's needs and this is a solid MVP. But the best thing and the thing that we've tried to embrace is make it so that we can update the product remotely so that we can keep working behind the scenes and that the customer's experience only continues to get better. Yeah. yeah. You know, you shared a, a little bit about your sister and your, and your upbringing and your, your parents and, and your experience meeting Theo and, um, but what are, what are some other impact moments that launched you on this trajectory into entrepreneurship and have, and have made you who you are today yeah. and, and equipped you with the ability to lead this disruptive organization? So I, I think one, uh, interesting one, I, I've got to get back to my mom, uh, and then give her another, uh, you know, shout out here. Uh, I graduated from school in December uh, of 2006 from university. And it was because I was graduating from you know, University of New Zealand. It was in the winter. And so uh, I applied to a number of jobs. And I had two job offers right, right away. Uh, one was working for CDW as an account manager for like government institutions and servers and you know, computers uh, at a firm downtown. Uh, I would you know, take the 6 a.m. train downtown. I would work from like 8 to 5, drive back. Uh, it was like 100K a year right out of school. Before nice. commission is passed. Great, and great was, opportunity. In, in 2006. That was 2006, yeah. yeah. The other job was a kiteboarding instructor making $23,000 a year in North Carolina <laughs> at the number one kiteboarding facility in the world. I took both job offers and I sent them to my mom in an email. And she called me five minutes later. And I was like, hey, so what do you think? And she's like, are you crazy? And I'm like, well, what do you think? And she's like, you would be nuts if you didn't do the kiteboarding thing. <laughs> and she's like, just do it for a year. And if you like it, keep doing it. Yeah. And if you don't, and you know that for me, you're at this kind of critical point, and this is what everybody tells you to do: get the job, commute to the city, you know, make, save some money, buy a house, get a girlfriend or a husband, you know, get married. And and I didn't want to do that. Like that to me scared me. The 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 define scared me. Like the yeah. path in school, I thought about being a doctor. I thought about being a lawyer. But the thing that scared me was just that it was the, it was you knew where you're going to be in 20 years. Yeah. Uh, the thing with kiteboarding, with entrepreneurship, I got to create my own reality. I got mm-hmm. to create what I wanted. And that was one of the kind of big impactful moments for me. As I was fresh out of school, I had two opportunities. And you know, I had my mom and my parents support me going down the path less mm-hmm. chosen. Mm-hmm. Uh, a year later, I was the sales manager of that facility. And you know, a year after that, uh, about a year and a half later, I was you know, the top dog. I was mm-hmm. next to the owners. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I left was because there was no more upward mobility for me. Yeah. And so you know, I think that was one of the big things. Is my mom believed in me. And she knew that if I was going to do something, I was going to do it the best that I could. And in just doing that, that's successful. And it doesn't matter if it's CDW or it's kiteboarding. Your mom is the an early pioneer of the growth mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a, the fixed mindset is like, you know, you, you go to elementary school, high school, college, get a job, and then retire 40 years later. Yeah. You know, collect yeah. your pension, which now there aren't any pensions. Exactly. And and there's no guarantees, right? Yeah. And it's just a fascinating thing. I mean, where does where did that come from from your mom? I mean, you know, I think, you know, um, you know, I was born uh, in 1984. My younger sister was born in 89. 
And in like 1992, my mom's testifying before the U.S. Senate on like the American with Disabilities Act and the disability access. You know, we grew up on the south side of Chicago. My parents are, you know, grown up Irish Catholic. And uh, when my sister was five, my mom tried to enroll her in Sunday school. And the church said, no, like, we don't want it. Like, we don't want to have to deal with it. It's it's too much of an issue. We can't we can't afford an aid for in her class. And this is like the Catholic church, like, you know, the Bible, Jesus, all these things like you're supposed to take care of the poor. And you know, for her, uh, that was like, what, what the heck is going on here? This doesn't make any sense. Like, you have to fight for what you believe in and fight for what's right. And, you know, my mom did fight for my sister's access into public schools and, you know, testified before the Senate and did all these things. And I, I, I was, you know, seven to 10 years old at that period. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what are my kind of reference points in the world? It's, you know, do what you believe in and do it all the way until like yeah. the top level. And so, you know, for me, it was, you know, every time there was a challenge, it wasn't a, re- it wasn't a reason to give up. It was now a new you know, opportunity to, to, to take on a new hurdle. Mm, I, I love that. And your, your mom's an incredible example. And on behalf of all Catholics in the world, I apologize <laughs> for that terrible experience. No, exactly. Know? Yes. You know, whoever that, that religious <laughs> yeah. instructor was needs to be exactly. you know, written up. You know? <laughs> Hopefully your mom drops some names. In, oh, man. Senate, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's all taken care of now. What has been the biggest challenge you've faced thus far since rolling out in board? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think if anything, uh, it comes from Justice Earl, by the way. Oh, that's a great one, man. Justice is the man. Yeah. You know, for me, I think it's not the one challenge. It's just getting used to the fact that there's always challenges. Um, I remember sitting down with Theo before we launched a Kickstarter and we were at a Thai restaurant and I was looking at him and we were like, are, are you ready for this, man? Are you re- like, this is going to change the company completely. It was just him and I and our product designer page, three of us. Um, so very small team. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's going to be a lot easier once we're public and you know, people see us and we'll be able to hire people easier. Because uh, we were totally stealth mode, like posting on you know, Craigslist because we couldn't afford LinkedIn and we weren't getting any bites. You know, no, everyone's like, who is this? Like, you don't even have a brand. Then you get through Kickstarter, and yeah, everybody knows who you are, and it's easier to hire, but now you've got all these Kickstarter backers who want updates and where you're at, and you have to start raising money and investment. So you get through one hurdle, and now you've got another challenge, and you have to get through that. You know, so it was ramping manufacturing and getting everything dialed in and doing beta testing and you know, all the evaluation testing, bringing on our contract manufacturer and you know, all that. And you know, that was a huge challenge. And then you kind of, now products are rolling, and we were filling distribution channels and retailers. And this is a huge challenge. So um, I think it's, you know, the, the big thing is that you can't, you know, look at every single one of these as just like, wow, I'm not making any forward progress. You're making a ton of forward progress. But the road to uh, success isn't like you brush through one or two doors. It's a constant struggle. And there's always going to be new challenges. And I think you've got to have the mindset, you know, to deal with that. You've got to have a support group of friends and mentors and advisors and people that, you know, can help support you through that. Um, because it's a very challenging and lonely place. Yeah, no, it, it is. And it's all about how you respond to adversity and setbacks. And it just reminds me of one of my favorite quotes uh, from Viktor Frankl, who wrote mm-hmm. a book called Man's Search for Meaning. I'm not sure if you ever re- uh, read it, but it's a phenomenal book. And the quote is, uh, no matter what your life circumstance, no, the, the last human freedom that no one can take from you is the ability for you to choose your attitude. Yeah. And so if you just put that, apply that to facing challenges, the yeah. It's, it's the same thing, right? Byron Katie, you know, yeah. do you have an internal locus control or an external? Mm-hmm. Are you responsible for reality or is it based on everybody outside yeah. of you? Yeah, absolutely. Why? So if change is a constant and we know that we're going to have challenges, why are we so resistant to it? That's a great question. I mean, as a species, yeah. um, 
you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm sure if we really boiled it down, it's going to get down to like our, you know, um, what is that? The reptilian brain, yeah, yeah. Um, we, you know, where it's that fight or flight kind of mechanism. Uh, you know, you open your email in the morning and you've got that one email that's like a real big challenge. And yeah. the tendency for most people is like, all right, I'm going to put that one off. I don't yeah. want to have to deal with that. I, I don't want to have to deal with pain. And I think, you know, the human being, the human body, the human psyche, um, you know, it's mind, body, spirits, all these different things, um, you know, combined is a, an incredibly malleable thing. Um, and it can undergo and overcome incredible strain and circumstances. Um, and there's um, one, you know, kind of, inspirational guy that I'm a big fan of, this guy, Dave Goggins, mm -hmm. uh, who's a U.S. Yeah. Navy SEAL. Yeah. I mean, fantastic guy, but he constantly challenges himself and he gets comfortable with being uncomfortable. That, that can happen, you know, and that's it. You, ha you have to brace the uncomfortable. So when you get that email and you're like, oh, I don't want to deal with it, deal with it, dive in yeah. and deal with it. And if you do that enough and you do make it a habit, it, whether it's you know an uncomfortable employee conversation or whether, you know, it's a challenging conversation with an investor or, you know, the, the faster you respond to that and maintain your level head and your cool, the better you're going to grow your business acumen and the more successful you ultimately you're going to be. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of something a, a past guest, Stephen Kotler, uh, said on the show, which is top performers use fear as a compass. And so when you're looking at uncomfortable situations, there's oftentimes our first re response is fear. Mm -hmm. and, and top performers move. I would love that. that. That's fantastic. You know? Great yeah. quote. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great, great quote. It's, it's was in, in relationship to his book, stealing fire and, and the rise of Superman, which is all about getting into flow states. Mm -hmm. uh, so fascinating conversation. Absolutely. But let's apply this, this question to what you guys are doing because mm -hmm. you're, you don't, import is not just some fun hobby, right? I mean, people think of skateboarding and, Oh, it's a fun hobby. They don't yeah. think about it as a mode of transportation. Yeah. You guys are, are disrupting the transportation industry. And, and even your investor, Kevin O'Leary, right? Yeah. Uh, didn't believe you. Didn't, didn't believe you at first. Mm -hmm. And so this is a challenge, right? Yeah. So, so, so how are you guys, uh, demographically, socioeconomically, whatever, going to break, pierce that veil and, and remove that friction that is going to prevent people from opting in yeah. and jumping on the inboard M1. Yeah, well, you know, I think the guys at Airbnb, you hear about their stories of trying to raise money, like angel rounds and venture. And at the beginning, they had a huge amount of pushback. They saw the future, and even some of the best VCs in Silicon Valley didn't see it, you know? It's just like, you're letting people in my house to do that, what? And when we started the company, you know, there, were, there was really nobody else out there. And people were like, you want to build an electric scale? Like, really, isn't this just, and they didn't see that the broad picture. Now, you know, you know, Ford and Daimler, Audi came out with the concept with the electric skateboard and the bumper of their Q6. You know, major transportation companies realize that transportation's going undergoing the biggest shift since the internal combustion engine. Um, the way that we use vehicles is going to completely change. The way we use cities is going to completely change. Uh, and it's everything from autonomous, you know, 18-wheelers to, you know, one-wheel devices. And I think that is a huge opportunity for inboard for everyone to really embrace that change. We were just one of the first ones to see it. Lightweight, portable, electric transportation that you can take with you anywhere empowers everyone. We all need to move. Whether, you know, it's, you know, the 15-year-old kid trying to get to school in the morning or, you know, uh, my 65-year-old mom trying to you know, get around the city, uh, we should be able to have a vehicle that works for everybody that's lightweight, portable, and that they, they can take with them. Um, and so for us right now at, you know, 
uh, the board without the battery in it weighs, you know, uh, 14, uh, 14 and a half pounds. And at that weight, the ability to kind of take it with you and carry it and go in an elevator in the back of an Uber, it's a product that lives with you. And the way that we see driving things forward is just expanding, you know, the, the access and changing form factors and kind of the use cases of, of that product. It's really, I mean, it's a beautiful product. It's, it's, it's amazing to, to look at. I honestly have not ridden one yet. Oh, we're uh, going to do it right after this. Okay, Absolutely. cool. Awesome. I, I just, as you were mentioning your mom, I would just love to see, and I think it would be a great promotional video yeah. for you guys to get your mom on an inboard riding through the city. We've got to do it. I've actually got a video of, of my dad. He, he was 63 at the time, uh, riding one of our very early prototypes. And he does great. I showed him VCs a lot. They're like, wow, this really is for anybody. Yeah. And, and I think that was it. You know, we saw the future and it took us, you know, probably about a year and a half to get the product to the point where we can sit down in front of investors like, wow, we can really see how this is mass market. But is, is it mass market? Is the, the market really there? And then you, you know, go forward for, for more months with you know, some of the biggest transportation companies in the space validating uh, you know, the usage of it. And now it's, you know, we're off to the races. Now it's just like, you know, how quickly can we get it down? What was the aha moment for you? Um, you know, from Theo and I, I remember my aha moment. You know, Theo had been building electric skateboards using belts you know, for, for years, starting, you know, kind of like the 2010 era. Um, but the belts just always broke down. They were always had to be replaced. They always had to be fixed. It's like if you rode your bike here and every time you got off of it, you had to fix the chain. Like you would never use your bike. When he flew out to the East Coast, uh, he called me on a Wednesday. He's like, I, I solved the problem. Because, you know, he, he asked me, he's like, hey, I'm making these belted boards. Could we sell them? I was you know, distributing products globally. And I was like, no, you cannot service this everywhere all the time. It's just not robust enough. It's not simple enough for, for the mass market. And he, he, he called me on a Wednesday, flew out uh, and was with me two days later on Friday. And I saw the hub motor, the Manta drive for the first time, the entire drive system inside a 79 millimeter wheel, the most powerful electric motor of its size. And that for me was that aha moment when you got to, you know, we still had a ton of electronics hanging underneath a wooden skateboard and, you know, things flopping around. But I, from, from there, I could see how everything else was going to evolve. And uh, you know, we really realized that you know, for the, this market to, to really work, you had to make it cool. You had to make it aspirational. And part of that's from the product uh, engineering, but a lot of it comes from the product design. Mm. And if you can really create a design aesthetic that, that inspires people, that people see and they're like, wow, that's really cool. A Dyson vacuum. Prior to Dyson, nobody stopped at a vacuum store to check it out. I'll walk through a mall now, and when I see a Dyson, I'm not going to go in and I'm going to check out the Dysons, you yeah. know? Because they completely, through meticulous engineering, really phenomenal engineering, and also brilliant design, they completely disrupted that market. Yeah, no, I, t I totally agree with you. I mean, the first time ever I was willing to have my wife spend a pretty penny on a vacuum. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? That's when you know you've hit it. <laughs> um, you know, Shark Tank is kind of a, an interesting thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, this, uh, it's reality television. Uh, and it's a great platform mm -hmm. and, and it, you know, it's a big risk mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Right. And so I'd love to learn the decision-making process behind why you guys decided to go on Shark Tank mm -hmm. and what the most surprising thing you learned mm -hmm. about the process was. Yeah. Yeah. So Shark Tank is just such a huge opportunity. It's almost become like, a like a, a thing, like a kind of like an institution where, you know, you've got Kickstarter, you check that off your list, you know, then you go to Shark Tank, you check that off your list, you know, you got this kind of checklist of being an entrepreneur. And um, they uh, have such a great platform for just reaching so many people. It takes a niche product and can really help to make it mass market. But at the end of the day, 
you know, the onus of how it turns out is really on you, you know, the entrepreneur. Uh, and you're right, you can go on there. And I've seen people walk off that stage, you know, quote, it was a disaster, you know? Yeah. And we left and we were high-fiving each other. Like we had a good deal with you know, two great investors. Uh, the, the interaction between all the um, sharks was fantastic. Um, you know, we, we had a great time there. It was really, really positive. And then you watch it on TV and you're like, dun, 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 the music and the edit. And you're like, oh, it wasn't really that dramatic. Um, and so it's funny because it makes you really realize like, well, I thought, you know, it was all sunshine and rainbows while we were out there. And then they edited to make it look a little bit more, you know, conflicting. Um, but at the end of the day, we still looked good. And we knew going into it that the only way inboard looked bad is if we lost our cool or if we, we did something wrong. And so um, there's a Nick Offerman quote that I really love um, that uh, every time someone raises their voice and you take a deep breath and exhale, you become more powerful. And so we went into that with that mentality, just like if they push on you, just kind of maintain calm, take a deep breath. And we knew our numbers. We knew the product. We had a great company. Um, and so we went into it. They were pretty respectful. You know, Kevin gave us an offer right off the bat. Uh, we said, we want to hear from everyone. I've heard him respond to that with, no, I want to know right now. With ours, he was, no, no, please take your time. And so I think we went into it with the mentality of that really, um, we were responsible for, you know, our outcome. Uh, the key thing was just maintaining our cool. Um, it was being respectful and humble to these great entrepreneurs and leaders uh, of technology, but also being really confident in what we created and crafted today. Yeah. And so I think for us, Going into it, that mindset, you know, we knew that, you know, we were going to have probably a good show. When, you know, I think when you start a company, or even before you start a company, you always think, like, would I do Shark Tank? And I know at certain times we're like, no, we'd never do Shark Tank. We don't need that. And then they call you, like, oh, maybe we should do it. Um, we were never 100% for it. We were never opposed for it. People would say, oh, did you, have you thought about it? Well, yeah, we thought about it, but we haven't applied. Um, and then, um, you know, we were lucky. They actually contacted us. Um, you know, they contact about 40% of the companies that go on the show. The other 60%, you know, are, are kind of uh, submitted. Um, that said, even if you they, they reach out to you, you still have to go through the application process, the pitching process, nothing else changes. And so when they called us, you know, we kind of looked around the room. We're like, yeah, let's do it. You know, let's take, not so much for inboard, but really let's take this market, this new industry of rideables, and let's give it a really good stanchion on like the mainstream American stage. And let's try and you know, do the best job that we can representing you know, this really amazing industry full of great companies and really passionate people that are doing awesome stuff. Hmm. That's powerful. I, I think that the two things that, that stand out the most to me, and I can remember watching the episode, you, you, went, you were calm. All three of you guys were calm the whole time. And you know, they're questioning your valuation, all this stuff. You know? and, and, but you, at the same time, you had this confidence. You know, you... you the three of you together, you knew your numbers, you knew the market, you knew what your vision was, and so therefore you were able to confidently communicate that and stand up for what your beliefs were without losing your cool when they challenged you, yeah. which, which is a problem for a lot of people is they get frazzled you yeah. know, immediately when they get challenged. And it's because they, they, don't, they don't have a conviction yeah. themselves about whether or not what they're doing is something they actually believe in. Yeah. And that, that is a huge lesson, I think, that people could take away from this conversation today. Uh, our, our PR guy uh, at Wild Story Media, um, Mark Gutman, fantastic guy. Uh, and he really likes to focus on outdoor and kind of really engaging wild stories. Um, he was with us on Char or for our uh, Kickstarter. And you know, before we launched on Kickstarter, he, he asked the point blank question, why should anybody care about this? And he told me like months later, um, after we were very successful on Kickstarter, just under half a million, he was like, totally honest, I didn't know if it was going to work. Like, you know, people come in and everyone thinks my idea is the best. But, you know, 
is it? You know, have you really, really kind of, and so, you know, after our successful Kickstarter, he'd helped others, you know, and he would ask people, do you really think that this, and some totally tanked and they would blame everyone else but themselves. I remember one guy specifically, oh, it was this or it was this. Well, dude, you've got to, you're the CEO of a company. You have to take some ownership for that. And kind of taking a step back um, to your, your comment on, you know, kind of that cool, uh, calm confidence. Uh, I meditate or try to uh, every morning, uh, and I use Headspace, the the app. Um, and Andy, the narrator, you know, he talks about that, like maintaining that cool, calm confidence. Um, I was just listening to a, a podcast by uh, Invisibilia on NPR, and they were talking about asymmetric um, emotional response. I, I can't remember if that was specifically it, but they talked about this um, uh, family that was having a barbecue in the backyard, and it's like. Two couples, husband, wife, and a kid, husband, wife, and a kid. And halfway through this dinner, this guy comes up out of the woods behind their house and sticks a gun to his wife's head. And he's just like, all the money right now. And they kind of frantically look around, not sure what to do. And then he puts the gun to the other wife's head. He's like, give me all the money right now. And they have no money. They're having a dinner. And so the wife that just had the gun to her head just turns to the guy and she's like, would you like to have a glass of wine? <laughs> and the guy kind of... You know, shakes his head and he looks at the glass of wine, he looks it up and he smells it and he takes a sip and then he sits down. And five minutes later, after talking with these people, he turns to the husband. He's like, I've made a terrible mistake. This isn't the right house. And he says, The thing that I really need right now is a hug. And he ends up hugging this guy. Is this a true story? This is a true story. And then the whole family gets up and ends up hugging this guy. And then he ends up walking away and the whole family runs inside and starts crying, sobbing. But, you know, a few hours later when the family leaves on the front porch of the, the house, is just the, the wine glass, just gently placed, empty. And it was this asymmetric emotional response. There's wow. somebody else coming in with this. And rather than stepping up and meeting that, they rather took the opposite. Yeah. And, you know, if you look through history at great leaders, really amazing leaders, if you look at Nelson Mandela, you know, how did he react to a part that he did with an asymmetric emotional response? If you look at Mahatma Gandhi, I mean, if you even look at, you know, Jesus Christ, I mean, they always kept their cool, Martin Luther King, whenever things got really tough. And I think, you know, in a business, when you're leading a team, when you, when you are the leader, the biggest, most important thing that you can do is maintain control of your emotions and maintain that state of that kind of cool, calm, confidence. You know who Jocko Willink is? I know that name very familiar. He, he's another U.S. Navy SEAL. He wrote a great book called Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win with, a, with his co-author, Leif Batten. They have a, a, a management consulting company called Echelon Front, and Jocko was a guest on the show. Ah. And in, during the show and in the book, he shares a story about how one of his junior officers, or you know, one of his SEAL leaders, was having a hard time encountering chaotic situations. And he wrote down on, it was specifically with gunfire, you know, he had to hit all these targets in training and he, he, he would freeze, he would freeze up. So, it, you know, typically when you enter a chaotic situation, you either freeze up and retract or you react, right? Yeah. And, and so his philosophy was, he wrote on the, on the window, relax, relax, look around, make a call, you know, and that's that same concept. That's yeah. that same concept. You know, I, as we're getting uh, close to the end of our time together, I want to ask a couple more questions. One is, you're the CEO of a highly visible, rapidly growing company. How has it impacted your life physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally? Yeah. You know, Great question. we were talking about that as you uh, came yeah. in. By yeah, 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 exactly. 
Um, you know, I think the big thing is, um, and I think Travis Kalanick after this week is kind of going through it. You really have to grow up really quickly. Nothing against Travis. I think actually he's a, he's a pretty uh, amazing leader, um, albeit everyone has these challenges and things like that. But, um, you know, the, the video I'm referring to is he kind of lost it, you know, in, in the moment where he was recorded um, on one of his Uber drivers. And um, that's probably one of the biggest things. Like as the leader of a company, you are the, you know, whether you want it or not, you are the, you know, the face. And um, you have to be, you know, maintaining that cool calm. And so I think if anything else, you know, it's just, you know, where, where are the resources, where are the mentors, where are the advisors, where are the, the, the lessons that I can learn to kind of further that, and, you know, getting into meditation was one thing, you know, you know, early on for the first two years of inboard, I didn't work out at all. And I was just like, I have to you know, focus on the company if I'm not spending every second here. And it started to detract from my mental well-being. You know, you have to be healthy. You have to be everything that you know you should be. And that's incredibly challenging. Um, there's this um, series of podcast or like uh, notes called the Philosopher's Notes. And it's this, you know, 15 to 20 minute kind of podcast on all these, you know, just great philosophers by this guy named Brian Johnson. So Brian Johnson talks about how um, you know, at any moment of your life or your day, and you're conflicted with a choice, he says, just take a step back and think about the person that you wish you were, the person that you want to be in three and four and five years. Who is that person? Be that person in this moment. That's it. Yeah. Just be the person that you want to be. You know, for the person who, you know, doesn't work out or, you know, isn't really even that healthy and you're, you know, going to order a sandwich, what would the person four years from now who's fit and in shape and, and as an entrepreneur, as the leader of the company to, to have people's respect, to have, you know, people's confidence and faith from your investors to your team that you're able to execute on what you want, you've got to hold yourself to that level. Yeah. You have to be the person that they need you to be and that you want to be. And that's challenging and it can be draining. I love that though, because I was, you know, who JP Sears is, uh -huh. so I, I just had him on the show. And his episode is going to actually air after, you know, sometime after yours. But we were talking about this very thing about choosing to be that person now. That there is no, the only time constraint is the one that we place upon ourselves. Yeah. And there's, there's this, there is no linear time when it comes to actually making decisions and and taking action. It's you can do that right now, even though you may not using the fitness example. You know, you may not be the most physically fit person externally, mm -hmm. but if you decide to be that person that you envision right now, yeah. your whole life is going to change mm -hmm. going Absolutely. forward. And yeah. you will become both internally and externally that physically fit person that you want to be. You know, Johnson kind of talks about, and, and, and just getting to a mental or mindset state, he, you know, if you go to bed one night, you're like, I'm going to wake up in the morning, I'm going to run. And you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, I'm not going to run. You're at like negative one. Yeah. All right. Now I'm going to eat a healthy meal. Oh, I'm just going to grab a coffee and a bagel. Okay. Now you're at negative two. So by the time you like get to work, you're like, oh, I'm already kind of depressed. I didn't already. And so, you know, where do you end your day? Are you ending your day negative at zero or are you ending your day positive? You know, you wake up, you've got one choice. Are you going to make the positive choice that you want to lead with? Or are you going to go back to the thing that you've been doing, the comfort zone where Dude, you know it? That's powerful, man. You have two choices, positive or negative. You yeah. Know, which you want to end up in the positive space or a negative space, you know? And when we, I just was listening to a podcast this morning on, on a great podcast, which I recommend called Finding Mastery mm -hmm. with Dr. Michael Gervais. He's, a, he's this sports psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks. Ah. Boo, Seahawks, by the way. Uh, but good, <laughs> Michael Gervais. Yes. Uh, but he was interviewing another you know, psychologist, uh, MD, PhD guy on, on mindset and mindfulness and all this stuff. And he, he said that 
you know, he talked about the how how your mind, how quickly or slowly your mind works. Mm-hmm. And just think about this: like a mood, a bad mood or a good mood, those are the slowest moving things in our brain. You're right. You know, yeah. Versus like an an awareness, mm-hmm. is that's the fastest thing because we're processing all of this thing. And the next fastest thing is attention. Yeah. You know what you're putting your attention on. Mm-hmm. And that was just like a boom. It was like I had never ever thought about mood or anything as yeah. being a speed yeah. right but it, but okay. it is it is and it's how quickly you decide to move and make yourself aware of the positive things yeah. versus the negative things it's going to shape your whole entire day you wake up in the morning you do something like healthy active or you know you, you eat a good meal or you meditate for a little bit or you you send that email that you didn't want to the day before you're going to get to the office and you're going to be in a positive yeah. state that's why jocko says never hit the snooze button he gets up at 4:30 and he says the worst thing that you could do yeah. is hit the snooze button because because yeah. you're already hitting the negative thing. Yeah, right? absolutely. You That's know? exactly how you should look at you it. Know? Um, <clears throat> I want to toss this out to the listening community. This is a, this is a, an opportunity for them to help inboard. Okay, mm-hmm. so this is this is the question: If there is a problem or or a situation that you would love for someone to solve that you guys haven't been able to figure out a solution to, what might that be? That that the listening community or some innovative person out there could say, you know what, I've got an idea. How here, here's how it can help inboard. Ah, interesting. For for us? For you? Um, that's really a great uh, great question. You know, I think for for us right now, there's so much excitement, so much attention that this transportation space. Everyone's looking at electric cars, but uh, or or self-driving cars. But it's it's these three things electrification, sharing, and automation that's going to affect cars. But as, as cars shrink down, look, you got a four-lane road with autonomous vehicles. You, have, you only need two of those. Um, so now, all of a sudden, we've got the opportunity to take two lanes of, of land that's been allocated to an appliance in our cities, in our communities, and we, can, we have the option to give them to something. We can give them to bike lanes. We can give them to restaurants and coffee shops for outdoor seating. Uh, we can make them green space. And so I think, you know, for the listening community, we, as, you know, a society need to take control of the the societies and the the cities and the places that we live. Uh, and in America, we've done a terrible job of developing our communities around an appliance. You know, the car. If you go to Europe, a lot of these small villages they were designed around foot traffic. You know, right. you stop at the baker, then you stop at the cheese place, you stop at the meat, and and, and then you're at home. Uh, and when I visit Theo's hometown in France, that's how it is. You know. Um, we're in America, you don't do that. You've got your subdivision and then everything else is out there and you drive to it. And so I think the opportunity for uh, the listening audience is to really embrace you know, this huge opportunity we have in front of us and to engage in your local government, in your, your local municipality, because this is going to happen no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I think as a, as a community, we need to you know, take responsibility for what is the shape of our communities and our society you know, 15 and, and 20 years from now, because what we're going to see with automation, especially in transportation, is going to completely reshape our society. Uh, it's a huge opportunity for inboard, and our goal is to make it so people can be outside, can be outdoors, can use this technology to increase the quality of their life rather than driving in a car passively or being in, uh, stuck on a bus or, you know, uh, a subway system to really get out there and be able to live and enjoy, you know, our communities and our people. And, you know, when you land in a, in a foreign city, like I was in Barcelona a few months ago and you've got your M1 and you're riding it around. I'd been to Barcelona before, but I'd never seen it the way that I did when you're, when you're either walking or you're on a bike or you're on a rideable. Um, and so for us, I think, um, uh, the best thing that, you know, 
in the biggest way that we need help is it's you know the grassroots community. Let's really embrace this huge opportunity for lightweight personal electric transportation and a shift away from being stuck in cars into really engaging with our community more. Uh, in Santa Cruz here, we've got a, a, a trail project going on right now to replace the old uh, defunct railroad with it with a trail. Projects and opportunities like that are massive, and they transform cities like Chicago with the 606, New York City with the High Line, even parts of San Francisco uh, and in the Bay Area. When you in, in, in Portland, Seattle, Boston, that's in America. You look at Hamburg, Munich, uh, London, Paris, Oslo, Helsinki. Uh, they are all banning cars in their city centers in the next. Uh, now it's only three years. You know, by 2020. Wow. So, um, you know, I think for the listening audience, we have a huge opportunity here. It's just, do you want to help shape? the way that your community and your town looks in the future. Is there a place that they can go to help you incubate ideas on how to make that happen? Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing would be to kind of start engaging with their, their local uh, communities. Uh, if they're interested in uh, this kind of transportation revolution, um, there's some great articles online. Um, you know, uh, we actually just had a fantastic article in Fast Company, which includes interviews with you know, people at the kind of highest levels of transportation. Um, and then I think it's, you know, trying to, you know, try out these different rideables, you know, try an electric bike, try, you know, riding your normal bike to work, um, you know, try a hoverboard or an electric skateboard or a scooter. And it's really interesting because once you do try it, 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 it affects the way that you think. The next time that you're walking to that stadium or across a huge parking lot, you're like, wow, I could be having a lot more fun and be yeah. doing something a lot more efficient yeah. uh, with me. That's awesome. If there's one thing you want people to remember from our conversation about disruption, about leading, about dreaming. What would it be? That's a really tough one. I, I think it's, you know, really, really, really drill into whatever it is that you want to do. And once you get down to the very root of it and you 100% believe in it, you just got to go after it with such conviction that no matter what roadblock you hit, you've got the drive. Inspiration's perishable. And you've got to find that kind of core drive that's not going to wear away after a hard conversation or a long weekend or you know a sleepless night. Uh, and it's, it's really having that conviction. So it's by no means saying, oh, just keep trying. No, if, you have a, if it's a bad idea, give up. You know, A no is a stepping stone to a yes. It helps you get on the path of what you actually should be doing. But once you find that and you're 100%, you know deep down, then you just got to pour everything into it. And no matter what, just keep you know, pushing forward. And then I think the last thing is that's it's easy to say that, but the way that you do that is by building a support network, yeah. by finding you know other investors, other advisors, other entrepreneurs that can help support you in that because there's no way you can do this alone. Ryan Evans dropping some wisdom on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I love that, man. Dude, um, where can we send listeners online to, number one, buy an M1? Yeah, if you want to check it out or if you're interested in buying one, uh, it's on inboardtechnology.com. Uh, so that's our website. Uh, and if you order a board today, we ship it usually with, uh, within two to three days. Um, we're actually one of the only companies in the space that is actively shipping and is all caught up with our product demand. Uh, and uh, soon you'll be seeing us in retail stores uh, throughout the U.S. Nice, awesome. And then social media stuff. Where you, where uh, we're on Facebook, that? Inboard Skate. Uh, Twitter, I believe, is Inboard Skate, as well as uh, Instagram, Inboard Skate. Okay. Uh, and they can check it all out. Uh, we, we really like to engage with our riders and our fans. Nice. And we will link to all of that great stuff in the show notes as well. Awesome. Ryan Evans, thank you for impacting our audience today and for being on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. It was an honor. Thank you so much. I hope our audience took some great notes, but if they didn't, they can go back and listen again and again. That's one of the beautiful things about a podcast. I love how you talked about the importance of testing ideas and not waiting until they are perfect to roll them out. And what you said at the end about inspiration being perishable, that really hit home with me. 
In case people missed the conversation, we have you covered with some of the highlights over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 51. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Podcast Masters and the Lot Marketing Group. We could not do this show without them. Until next time, go make an impact.